to tell us and be able to learn during this Advent season as we wait and anticipate Christmas coming. And so read along with me here in Matthew chapter 2, and we'll read starting in verses 1 and finish in verse 12. Follow along with me. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures... They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your words to us that we've just read. For these different uh, accounts of Christmas, of you coming into this world that not only um, tickle our ears, but Lord, stir our hearts and transform us ultimately. So Lord, I pray that you would do that good work that only your spirit can do, that we would have not only ears to hear and eyes to see, but that we would allow these, these words to transform us and make us new. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, When my wife and I were dating in Chicago, this was probably 18, 19 years ago. So this has been a while. I was working in Chicago as a consultant. And my wife at that time, as we were dating, she was actually an elementary ed teacher in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. And so while we were dating in Chicago, at the work that I had, my CFO every single week or every single day without fail would send me these inspirational quotes or stories. Now, most of them were just horrible, right? I mean, most of the inspirational quotes and stories you hear or read are just cheesy, way outdated, and just actually do nothing for you because it's just horrible. But every now and then, you get one that's actually good. And I, I got one that was actually really good, and I wanted to send it to my, my wife, or soon-to-be wife, while we were dating. And so... I told you I was dating her, and one of the things that, I, that she'll poke fun of me about is that when we were dating, I was very, very, very romantic. You know, even to the point where we were long-distance dating, I'd be like, I can never get mad at you, you know? But, like, one of the things that I always did was I would send her any emails that I would send. I would always begin not addressing her by name, but I would say, hey, beautiful. 
You know, and I stopped quickly after we got married because it's too late. She, I got her. But I would send her these. And so one of these inspirational quotes I got, I sent it to her and I said, hey, beautiful, read this. Hopefully it makes your day. And I went on with my day and close to noon, my boss above me said, hey, Dan, I need to see you. And it was somewhat serious and I was a little nervous, but I didn't think much of it. And I went into his office right before lunchtime and he's like, Dan, sit down. So I sat down and he slides me a piece of paper and goes, read it. I turn it over and it's the email. And I'm horrified because instead of hitting forward, I hit reply and called my CFO, hey, beautiful. And this is a gigantic company. Now, I thought I was losing my job right there because he called me in. But they assumed it was an honest mistake, but they wanted to make sure I would never do that again and making sure I know hit or hitting reply versus forward. Now, why do I share this story? The reason I share this story is because sometimes when we share announcements, when we share news, it goes to people that are the most unexpected of people. People like my CFO. And here in this story with the wise men, they receive news that they should not have gotten by the likes of the Israelite people. And we're going to look at why this is so significant and why it's so significant for you and for me. And we want to just do this in a couple of ways by looking at who were these wise men as we do a little bit of revisionist history, but also then ask ourselves, what's the significance? Why does this matter to you and to me? Well, let's look at who were these wise men. Like we've been doing almost every single week, we've looked at different stories, book Bibles, children's books, we've looked at different songs. But whenever you come to the wise men in the Christmas nativity scene, what do you always see? Show this slide. You see what? What's the common theme? You see three wise men in every single picture. In songs that we sing, right? We three kings of Orient are. Bringing gifts, traveling afar, right? And every single time you see this, we assume in our tradition that there were three wise men. And the reason we do is because of the three gifts, right? There's gold, there's frankincense, and there's myrrh. But when Christmas Day comes, I give, my wife and I give our children more than just one or two gifts. We give three or four gifts. Does that mean that they have three or four parents? No. I don't give my wife any gift on Christmas. Does that mean she has no husband? So what we see here is that we might, <laughs> we might, we might actually look at this and go, well, okay, there could have been three, but in actuality, there could have been two. There could have been four. There could have been eight, 12. And actually, church history shows us that there were, there's all these different guesses. One historian says that there are two men, two men appear in the ancient catacomb of Peter and Marcellinus, four in the catacomb of Domitella, and eight or 12 in the medieval list. The fact of the matter is, we simply do not know. All we know is here that Matthew uses the plural. There are multiple wise men who came to worship Jesus. Now, who were they? There's a lot of mystery be behind who they were. And tradition actually says that they were kings. 
You might have heard that before. You might have actually heard it from the pulpit here because I look back at a few of my sermons and there was a sermon in the early 20-somethings, like 2013, where I preached a sermon and the title was called Three Kings. There's King Jesus, there's King Herod, and you had the three kings of, uh, who came from the east. When you actually do a deep dive into this, and I did, following footnotes after footnotes, going into other sources, what we know is that these men were not kings, but they were servants of the king. This word magi that is used in the Greek is actually derived from Persian, from Persia, indicating that they were from a priestly caste. And it was actually used to describe astrologers. These were men who actually would interpret signs in the sky. <coughs> Excuse me. Stars and dreams. They were mathematicians who would be able to interpret what was going on significantly in the world. If you're familiar with the Bible at all and you've come, been in the church, the book of Daniel. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar the king has all these dreams. And who does he call on? These magi. These kinds of astrologers that would interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream to be able to tell him what that meant. We also say it in Exodus. When Moses and Aaron come and approach Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, they perform all of these signs and wonders, right? The ten plagues. And one of them was when he would, uh, Moses and Aaron would turn the water into blood. But what does Pharaoh do? He calls on what? His servants. These sorcerers. And what do they do? They did the exact same thing Moses and Aaron did. And so when you look at this word magi, they weren't king, but these were wise men, astrologers, servants to the king that basically were smart, powerful, rich men who helped out their kings. So who were they? They were servants of kings who studied and interpreted astrology, dreams, and different signs for their kings. Now, where did they come from? We read that in the days of Herod in verse 1, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, there's all different sort of assumptions of where they came from. The, the, the top three are popular are Babylon, Persia, and Arabia. Babylon makes a lot of sense. Why? Because remember, when Israel became captive to Babylon, where did they go? They went to Babylon, and Babylon would have encountered the scriptures of the Old Testament. The prophecies of a star, of, of a king being born in Bethlehem, in Jerusalem. So what you see is they would have actually been encountering these scriptures and would have had some foresight to know that there would be a day when the king would come and a star would rise to help them guide them. Persia? Well, with astrology, Persia was the hotbed of astrology at that time. And so when historians look at this, they say the East must have been Persia. But if I were to put any money on this, I would, have, I would say Arabia. And we don't know, but I would say Arabia because of three things. Kenneth Bailey, who's a scholar and wrote this book called Seeing Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, he talks about him growing up in the West Bank in, uh, in, in Jerusalem. And in Israel. And he observed anytime a visitor from Jordan would come into his city, they would say that they came from the east, which of course meant the east side of the Jordan River. 
And if that's the case, you would naturally assume that Jewish Christians living in the holy city back in the first century thought and talked the same way. Meaning, the east for them would naturally refer to the Jordanian deserts that connect with the deserts of Arabia. But secondly, why I think this is the case is because what gifts do these men bring? They bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when you look at history, frankincense and myrrh grew in trees only in southern Arabia. And furthermore, I would say, one of the earliest existing commentaries by church fathers like Justin Martyr in AD 160, he was a Palestinian Christian who grew up in the city of Caesarea. Look at what he wrote. He said, The wise men from Arabia came to Bethlehem and worshipped the child and offered to him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And Justin Martyr says this five times in his account. Not trying to explain it away, but it's just assumed in five different places that these wise men hailed from Arabia. So, aside from our historical curiosities about who they were, how many, and where they came from, why does this actually matter for us today? Think about it this way. You have rich, successful servants of a king from a nation like Arabia or Babylon or Persia who are astrologers interpreting signs and see this star and they follow it coming from so far away to pay homage and worship and bow down and present gifts to the king of a distant country, Israel, Jesus himself. Why is that so significant? Well, my son likes to use this word glitch. And I'm going to use that word here because I think it's perfect for what is happening in Matthew's account. Remember last week in Luke's account, who does he share about being the first people to receive the news of Jesus' birth? The shepherds. That was, that was the most jarring, most, uh, most upsetting thing for an Israelite to hear, that shepherds would receive the news of Jesus' birth. Worthless people like shepherds. It should be the most religious, the most astute, the most moral and high. And that would have been jarring. And Luke gives that for a very specific reason. Who does Matthew tell us receives the first news of Jesus' birth? The Magi. He chooses the Magi. People from a faraway country from the east. Not Israelites. Not Jewish. Not their own people. But people from afar. Why? That's a glitch here. That is a glitch in why Matthew would tell a story like that from the perspective of an Israelite. But here's why. What precedes chapter 2 that we just read? If you just turn the page, you'll see that it's the genealogy of Jesus. It's the genealogy, generation after generation, from Abraham to David to Jesus. You hear this beautiful account telling of who and how Jesus came into our world. It's a story of generation after generation of God's faithfulness to his people of Israel. And so when Jesus' birth comes to the forefront, what we see Matthew telling us is that this is Jesus as the embodiment of all of Israel's entire history. 
Jesus is the true firstborn of Israel and their deliverer. That's the pinnacle. He's the firstborn of Israel. Jesus is. But then what happens in the rest of Matthew's account? Over and over and over again, you see Israelites, Jewish people, his own people reject him as their deliverer and their king. Even look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. He calls all of his chief priests and the scribes to inquire about this Jesus. From the beginning of Matthew's account, his own people reject him and do not believe that Jesus is God's son. And here Matthew wants to let us in, to let us know that instead of his own people, Jewish Israelites, it is thoroughly pagan Gentiles these magi who alone read the scriptures rightly. And they come to herald and pay homage and worship the true king. So when the magi bow down, they basically implicitly signal what Matthew explicitly later makes very crystal clear of the Great Commission. That this gospel, this Jesus, is not only for Jew but it's for Gentile and Greek. I mean, even what we heard this morning from Annalise, it is this beautiful story that we are the recipients of the good news of Jesus, that it was not only for Israelites, but it was for all people. Jesus was not only king of the Jews, but he was king of all the nations. And this is this beautiful glitch in Matthew intending to remind us that this message is for all nations, of all mankind, of all humanity. This is the beautiful story and wonder of Christmas for lost sinners of all kinds throughout the world. Whether it's for lowly shepherds or rich astrologers, it's for you and for me to believe. So what's our response? Well, I think we have to ask ourselves, who do you pay homage to? Who do you go travel distant countries to go see and worship? In our culture, what we worship is whatever is powerful, rich, influential, big. It's whatever things we think will give us what we want and need. Even think about Christmas, right? Christmas is a season of busyness, of glitz, of popularity, of things that make us feel good. But in the story of Christmas here that we've been looking at throughout these four weeks, is that this is a story that is other than. I mean, even the Magi do what we do here in our culture. Who, where do they go to pay respects of this king that comes? They don't go to Bethlehem. They go to Jerusalem where Herod lived because that's what we would assume. Christmas is about the rich, the popular, the wealthy, the influential, the powerful. But Jesus wasn't there. He was in Bethlehem. I remember this scene. This is a common scene where it's not in some barn or stable. This was in a guest room in a family house. Jesus is most likely one or two years old. And here, these magi come and worship and recognize him as king when his own people, the Jewish people, could not do that. And Christmas is like that. 
in the midst of suffering, where mothers cry and grieve and weep and lament. That's why Jesus came into this world. When Herod is threatened that another king has been born, what does he do? After the verses that we read, Herod puts out an edict to kill every single male two years and younger. This is the setting in which Jesus comes into our world. It's the story of God who takes on flesh to die for his people, to suffer because of his love for us, and to take on death so that we might actually live. He's the one we worship and pay homage to. There's no other thing that is worthy of worship. Look at these magi. What do we read in verse 10? They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. In other words, they were overwhelmed. They were overwhelmed because of the king of kings who came into the world. Not knowing anything, not reading any passage that Jesus would even read to them. They saw him and they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Who do you pay homage to? He is truly worthy of worship in the midst of suffering, weeping, and wailing. We began looking at different pictures of storybook Bibles of the wise men. I want to end our time with another picture. It's a painting by Leonardo da Vinci. And it's called The Adoration of the Magi. Now the story behind this painting is that in 1480, Leonardo da Vinci was actually commissioned by these Augustinian monks of San Donato to paint a picture of this passage of Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, Leonardo ended up leaving that city, and he never finished it. And so this unnamed artist actually finished what we see today. But when these monks received the final painting, they were flabbergasted. They were shocked. They were actually appalled in what they saw. Because while in the foreground, you see this beautiful theme of of Renaissance painting and symmetry and all of that, What you don't see or is harder to see is actually in the background. And in the background, what these these monks saw was a ruined, ruined buildings, horsemen fighting battles and war, half emaciated figures with distorted and anxious faces ravaged by age and disease. In other words, What Leonardo does here in his painting is he's telling us that the Christ child came in the midst of war and death. And what we are reminded is that this is the setting in which Jesus comes in to make all things right for you and for me. It's the midst of mothers weeping and wailing and lamenting. It's in the midst of financial trouble. It's in the midst of your marriages on the brink of falling apart. It's a midst of your own anxiety and mental health and depression. It's a midst of everything that's not going right. Jesus enters our world to remind us that the light of the world has come and he has conquered darkness and he has come to conquer all that is wrong and he's here to make all things right again. This is the beautiful story of Christmas. On this last Sunday, of Advent. While we might have been tickled by the different revisionist stories of Christmas, like Mary and the inn and the shepherds, and even here with the wise men, my prayer is that 
you might not just be tickled by what you've heard, but that you might remember that the light of the world came into our darkness to give us hope and peace and joy. Not just through Jesus' great teaching, not just through his morality, but through his death and resurrection on the cross to not only conquer our own sin, but to conquer all that has been ravaged and impacted by sin. Whatever is going on in the background of your life, maybe even in the foreground of your life, he wants to remind you this Christmas season that the light of the world has come. And in the midst of ravaged buildings, in the midst of what looks like skeletons and distorted and anxious faces, Christ has come and we could rejoice with exceedingly great joy because Emmanuel is with us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the good news of Jesus, that he has come into our world and will come again. And no matter what we experience, even this day while we sit here, Lord, you offer us hope and love, peace and joy because of Jesus. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to not only remember that, but to hold on to that, that it would be our strength this week. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.